Thank you. Just say, there are some handouts at the back, so if you've not picked one up, maybe if someone could just distribute them. Okay, well, may I begin by thanking you all for the welcome you've shown me over the past couple of months. I've been touched by the many displays of hospitality by many in this room, and I feel very blessed to be part of this church family for this short time, so thank you. Many of you will know that I, as Jason just said, that I spent much of my past decade at Oxford, through my undergraduate, master's, and finally PhD. And much of the latter half of that time is very much spent on the person of John Chrysostom. And this morning, I wanted to share with you some of the lessons that I have drawn personally from studying his life and his writings. As I'll explain more in a few moments, there's much that I won't even be mentioning. There are many lessons we could draw from Chrysostom. And this lecture could go on all day, if you have the patience for it. Well, that I'll be focusing um, on just those points which have particularly struck me over the course of my studies. Before delving into Chrysostom, however, I wanted to say a few words about the reason for having historical or biographical talks in the first place. Now, as you may have guessed, I love history, but I'm very much conscious that this isn't true for everyone. And certainly I've known many people over the years who have felt that there is no benefit at all from getting into mere dusty old books. So why read biographies or go back into the past? Well, I have two brief reasons I'd just like to quickly share with you. First, past Christian figures can wonderfully be wonderfully encouraging examples of faith that we can imitate today. To be sure, no Christian is perfect and we should not idolize them. But nonetheless, the strength of their faith, their zeal for the gospel, their love for others can be a wonderful testimony to the work of God's grace in an individual's life and a spur to us to follow in their footsteps. Under the Lewis quotation on the handout, I put down there a verse from Hebrews. The writer's just gone through a whole list of Old Testament figures who demonstrated great faith in their lives, and he concludes with these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The past saints are likened to those who have already run the same race we are now running and are lining the way, cheering us on towards our goal. In this 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, I'm reminded of um, another figure from the past, Martin Luther, and his famous statement when he said, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to get it all done. (laughs) I find his example a rebuke to me and my implicit attitude so often that I'm too busy to pray. Here was a man who saw his dependence on God as being of the utmost importance to all he did, and his example cheers me on on my own uh, path with Christ. Secondly, then, looking at the teaching of past Christian figures can be useful as a way of correcting and improving our own thoughts and ideas. 
living in a different time and place. They were therefore asking different questions and providing different answers. C.S. Lewis, I think, puts this point really well, and I put down a quote there on the handout. None of us can fully escape this blindness, the blindness of our own age, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only modern books. Where they are true, they will give us truths which we half knew already. Where they are false, they will aggravate the error with which we are already dangerously ill. The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can be done only by reading old books. Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no cleverer then than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing, and their own errors, being now open and palpable, will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. So in short, the past can act as a useful corrective for the present and can provide encouraging examples that spur us on in our own Christian walk. So on that basis, therefore, let us now turn to the figure of John Chrysostom. He's not for us today a particularly well-known figure, at least for those of us in the Western tradition. So let me begin with the introductions. First, his name. His name was actually just John. During his lifetime, he would have been known as John of Antioch or John of Constantinople, like Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. There were no surnames in the ancient Greek world. The name Chrysostom is in fact a Greek word, a Greek adjective, meaning golden mouth an adjective which was bestowed on him only many years after his death in recognition of the great eloquence and power with which he preached. And it is as a preacher that he is most well-known today. He was born in around the year 350. I've got a timeline on the handout for you to just follow through. Uh, making him a slightly older contemporary of Augustine. And he was born in one of the great centres of Christianity in what was then the Eastern Roman Empire, the city of Antioch, today on the border between Turkey and Syria. This was the city which Luke tells us in Acts 11.26 was where the disciples of Christ were first called Christians. And he was born into a world of massive change. This was the time that is often referred to today as late antiquity, when the classical pagan Roman world of antiquity began to give way what would become the Christian Middle Ages. Just 25 years before, Constantine had become emperor in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, and for the first time had elevated Christianity from being little more than a persecuted minority religion to being the favoured religion of the state. Not long afterwards, he called the famous Nicene Council, which many of you may have heard of, to settle once and for all the debates about the relationship between Jesus and God. Debates, however, which continued to rage right through Chrysostom's lifetime, with the support of the emperor of the day always being crucial to determine which side had the upper hand. 
Of Chrysostom's early life, we know fairly little, though we can presume he followed the typical education of a young man from a well-to-do family. In his 20s, he spent four years living as a monk in the mountains around Antioch, and then a further two, living an extremely harsh, ascetic lifestyle, as was not uncommon at the time, living by himself in an isolated cave. As he approached the, year, as he approached the age of 30, in the year 378, he returned to the city, in part possibly because of deteriorating health. Living in a cave isn't for everyone. <laughs> he was ordained deacon in the church, and then in 386, in his mid to late 30s, he was ordained as a presbyter. And he remained in this role for the next 12 years. And it was during this time that he began to establish a reputation as a powerful and eloquent preacher. Then in 397, he was unexpectedly appointed as Archbishop of Constantinople, the city which had now become the imperial capital for the Eastern Roman Empire. It was a controversial appointment, particularly with Theophilus, the Bishop of Alexandria, Alexandria being with Constantinople and Antioch, the third uh, major city in the Eastern Empire. Theophilus had hoped for his own priest to get the job. Chrysostom now found himself very much at the heart of the political life of both church and empire. He was not especially gifted in diplomacy and continued to preach unswervingly the gospel of Christ and its full moral implications. As a result, he did not win many friends among the rich and powerful, but did win a large following among the ordinary citizens of the city who would flock to hear his sermons. Just six years later, in the year 403, his political enemies, both in church and state, gathered together to form a synod to discuss various charges against him. He refused to attend, he refused to acknowledge it, and was condemned in his absence and sent into exile. On hearing that their beloved bishop had been taken from them, the people rioted, and with Chrysostom just a few miles down the road, on his way to exile, the emperor changed his mind, overturned the decision, and restored him. But he didn't get to stay for long. And in the spring of the following year, he was exiled again, this time for good. He spent the next three years being moved around the remote mountains of what is now eastern Turkey. And in a very uh, poor health, he died in his late 50s in the year 407. Despite dying in ignominy, the great affection in which he was held by many meant that his reputation was soon restored, and he quickly became one of the most loved figures in the Greek-speaking church. Still today, he's one of the, the big figures of Eastern Orthodoxy. His sermons were copied and recopied, and still today there survive an astonishing 800-plus sermons, in addition to a collection of letters written while in exile and a number of treatises on various topics. So the quantity of his writings is roughly equivalent to Augustine in the West, and no other church father um, comes close um, to either of those. So now that we have met the man, what can we learn from him? Given such a huge body of writings, there are many lessons I could draw out for us today. 
but I will instead just focus on, as I said, three or four particular themes which particularly struck me when I was um, doing my research. First, a theme that runs right through is the condescension of God. Like a good teacher or parent with his children, God does not remain up there, but comes down to our level and does all he can to help us understand. Supremely, of course, God condescends in the incarnation when he takes on human flesh. And in fact, the earliest Christmas sermon we have um, comes from the hand of Chrysostom, celebrating the mystery and wonder of the incarnation. But Chrysostom finds instances of God's condescension to humanity right throughout the scriptures. One Chrysostom scholar, David Rylarsdom, indeed sees this concept as being the thread that runs right through his preaching and his theology. God appears to individuals in visions. He speaks in a way that people can understand. He makes use of human customs. He provides human exemplars to follow. He adapts his tone and language to accommodate people at different stages of maturity and so on. For example, in his dealings with Abraham, God used concrete means to have the patriarch, to help the patriarch have faith in God's seemingly unbelievable promises. Chrysostom points out that God's continuous care of Abraham, the instruction to look up and count the stars in the sky, and the experience of the trance he later fell into, were all used by God to strengthen Abraham's faith. Look down, if you will, at the first passage cited on the handout in the first box there. See God's appropriate adaptation, his condescension, in wanting to strengthen his faith, Abraham's faith, and persuade him to have complete, not complete certainty about what had been promised. Did you see the extraordinary degree of his loving kindness? Did you see the extent of his considerateness, how he wants to confirm Abraham's spirit and make his faith stronger so that he might no longer be inclined to see natural obstacles, but rather consider the power of the one who had made the assurances? as if his promises had already taken effect and thus be free to trust him. God comes down to Abraham's level. He condescends to help Abraham trust in him. Or moving to the New Testament, when Paul in his letter to Titus quotes from a Greek poet in chapter 1, verse 12, Chrysostom sees this again as an example of God's condescension. For he addresses Greeks through Greek, pro uh, Greek poets, as he addresses Jews through Jewish prophets. He then goes on to give other examples. He leads the stargazing Magi by a star. He spoke to Saul through the witch of Endor because he already trusted the witch, and so on. Time and again, God stoops down to our level to make himself understood, uses the means that we uh, know and understand to um, help us understand God. For Chrysostom, this is central to God's character and his love for humanity, as he concludes in the second passage in that box. For nowhere does God look to his own dignity, but everywhere to what is useful for us. If a father does not look to his own dignity, but speaks in baby talk with his children, 
calling food, meat, and drink, not by their Greek names, but in some childish and foreign language. How much more does God? Even in reproach, he condescends when he says through the prophet, if the nations exchange their gods, here God is uh, condescending by using the word gods for things which, of course, are not actually gods. His condescension can be seen everywhere in scripture, both in words and deeds. A criticism often levelled at Chrysostom and other Eastern Church fathers is that they focus too much on the incarnation and the mystery of God and spend less time thinking about the cross and the atonement. Well, the opposite is perhaps true of us. We spend lots of time thinking about our salvation one on the cross, but comparatively little time marvelling at the bewilderingly wonderful truth that God became a man, that God condescended to our level. For Chrysostom, this was something to be filled with awe and wonder at. You can see that if you look back at the previous quotation on the handout, repeatedly he asks his congregation, did you see, did you see the extraordinary degree of his loving kindness? Did you see the extent of his considerateness? He longs for his congregation to see, to grasp how loving God is, to be willing to do whatever is useful for them, whatever it takes to draw them back to the right path. Repeatedly throughout his sermons, he urges his congregation, let us be in awe at how great Christ's love is. Elsewhere, he says that when we see and grasp the loving kindness of God, our hearts are warmed in response. And the gratitude we feel to a friend who has done us a kindness pales into insignificance when compared with how we should feel in response to the grace of God exhibited in our salvation. When I was a young Christian, I was told repeatedly of the need to find a personal application in every passage of scripture, to find some concrete way in which my life would be changed in light of it. I've come to see, however, that sometimes my only response is simply to marvel at God's loving kindness, at his concern for us, so often shown in the way he comes down to our level to help lift us up to his. And indeed, perhaps we could profit greatly from just stopping occasionally to marvel, to be held in awe at how great and how loving God's love is. So much then for God's condescension. The second lesson I would like to draw out is his staunch opposition to sin. He would repeatedly criticise his congregation for not living godly lives, so much so that much recent scholarship infers that Christians at the time were a pretty uncommitted bunch, and serious devotion to faith was somewhat lacking. In fact, this was my whole argument in my thesis, was to argue against such claims by pointing out that such strong rhetoric um, tells us more about Chrysostom as a preacher than it does necessarily about his congregation. For him, personal holiness was a necessity for all those who claimed to be followers of Christ. It seems he often encountered an argument that only monks needed to be really holy. For ordinary Christians, a lower standard could be expected. Chrysostom could not have disagreed more. Although he would acknowledge that Christians 
in the world had things more difficult, he still urged a radical transformation of life. He would frequently critique and condemn the sins of the day, lust, swearing, vainglory, all things which are still very much present today. Often you could simply change a few references and preach the same sermon today, and it would have just as much relevance. In one sermon, he is critiquing those who attend the theatre, not for some puritanical stance against entertainment, but because theatrical shows of the time typically included dancing troops of scantily clad women. He has no time at all for those who claim to be immune to any feelings of lust at such spectacles. And I've got a passage there on the handout. What evil, someone asks. I feel pain at this because although you're sick, you don't know it, so that you could look for a doctor. You've become filled with adultery and you ask, what evil? Didn't you hear Christ's warning? The one who looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her. What then, you say, if I don't look at her to desire her? And how could you convince me? The man who isn't strong enough to stay away from spectacles but makes such an effort in a matter like this, how will, be, how will he be able to remain spotless after watching? Surely your body isn't stone. Surely it isn't iron. You are encased in flesh, human flesh, which is ignited by desire more quickly than hay is. <laughs> don't, irrational desire, don't irrational dislikes result from this? I mean that when you return home as a captive, full of this woman, both your wife seems rather distasteful and your children seem rather tiresome and your servants a nuisance and your house too much and the usual cares associated with running the necessary affairs of the household appear troublesome and everyone who belongs to it is tiresome and a nuisance. The cause of this is that you didn't return home alone but had the prostitute with you, although she didn't return in a clear and visible way. That would have been easier because your wife would have got rid of her straight away. <laughs> but the prostitute was lying in wait in your thoughts and in your consciousness, igniting the Babylonian furnace inside you. Wow. <laughs> Do not toy with sin, he is saying. Do not underestimate the power of our own desires and do not underestimate the consequences of our sin. Take sin seriously and be determined to strive for godliness. Similarly, he would also not shy away from critiquing the cultural practices of the day and such forthrightness seems in part to have been what won him enemies at court. An interesting example is his criticism of the Roman adultery laws. It was only illegal for a woman to commit adultery, and society had no problem at all with men sleeping around. This might seem an obvious injustice to us, but at the time, Chrysostom was being very radical when he declared that any married person, whether man or woman, committed adultery if they slept with someone other than their spouse. He had to argue at length that both were equally bound to the marriage. Even if the legal system did not condemn unfaithful men, God does. The lesson I think we can take from all this is to be bolder in identifying sin in our own lives and in society, and so far as it rests with us, to root it out. 
Now, of course, we live in a very different age to Chrysostom, and I'm sure if Jason were to preach in the same highly critical, condemnatory tone as he, we wouldn't be winning many people to Christ. Nonetheless, and maybe I speak only for myself in this, I think many of us could take personal holiness much more seriously. I know I certainly need to be reminded that Jesus' opening words in the Gospel of Mark were, repent and believe the Gospel. Repent. Turn your life around. Turn from your sin and turn to your God. I'm sure there's more all of us can do to put sin to death in our lives. And I have certainly found reading Chrysostom a helpful rebuke to my own laxity at times in this regard. And whilst we should be careful not to be throwing stones in glass houses, maybe there is room to be bolder in shining a spotlight onto the injustices of contemporary society. But I'll leave that thought um, with you. This brings us to the third lesson I wanted to draw out from Chrysostom, namely his great concern for the poor. And this is a theme that recurs repeatedly throughout his sermons, one of the things he's most well-known for. He was incensed at the neglect of the poor and the corresponding extravagance of the rich. Chrysostom takes very seriously the passage in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus declares, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. For Chrysostom, the person in need is Christ himself. If we ignore him or her, we ignore Christ. This comes across powerfully in the next passage on the handout. He's critiquing those who spend lots of money on decorating the church, but neglect the poor. What's the use when his table is full of gold cups, but he himself is dying of hunger? First satisfy his hunger and then decorate his table as well with what's left over. Do you make him a cup of gold, but not give him a cup of cold water? What's the use? Do you furnish his table with cloths embroidered with gold, but do not even provide him with the shirt he needs? What profit comes from this? Tell me, if you saw someone lacking the food he needs, and instead of relieving his hunger, you deck out his table with silverware, would he be grateful to you? but not rather indignant? What? If you saw someone clothed in rags and frozen from the cold, and instead of giving him a coat, you fashioned golden columns and said that you were doing it for his honour, would you not say that you are mocking him? Would you not think it an insult and an extreme one at that? These are strong words. Such people, he is claiming, are actually so focused on decorating Christ's house, they're neglecting Christ himself. The people he was speaking of, I believe, were quite likely largely godly men and women who were not intentionally neglecting the poor. Rather, Chrysostom is using deliberately provocative and stark language to challenge us to consider whether we truly have our priorities right. Skewed priorities are something that Chrysostom seeks to draw our attention to again and again. Some of his strongest words, in fact, are for those who, saw, who he saw as wasting money on superfluous luxuries while ignoring the beggar at their gates. One of my favorite passages, which has very much stuck with me ever since I first came across it, powerfully highlights 
this situation, the next one on the handout. Do you see how great wealth makes people mad, how it inflames them? But even today, there are people who don't distance themselves from it, but are much sillier. How, tell me, do those who make silver pots and vessels and flasks differ in silliness from the golden plane tree? In Greek legend, a famous gift to the Persian king Darius. How do the women differ, I'm embarrassed but have to say it, who make silver chamber pots? Those of you who make them should be ashamed. Christ is starving and you're indulging like that. What madness is this? What transgression of decency? What fever? Another person made in the image of God is dying of cold while you're equipping yourself with such things. What arrogance, what more would a mad person do? Do you so revere excrement that you would receive it in silver? <laughs> I know that you're stunned as you listen to this, but it's the women who act like this who should be stunned and the husbands who pander to such illnesses. This is intemperance and cruelty and inhumanity and brutality and insolence. Well, this for me is classic Chris Austin. He loves to make behavior, which at the time would probably not have been particularly noteworthy, seem ridiculous. It is worth saying that he would probably want to urge on us a much greater asceticism than I think the Bible demands or desires. There's nothing wrong with enjoying God's good gifts in moderation. But Chris Austin was particularly vexed by what he saw as ridiculous expenditure that also went hand in hand with the neglect of the needy. He was concerned that we get our priorities right. And I think we could all do with applying this challenge to ourselves. What are our silver chamber pots? Are we tempted to spend money on things that we don't really need or even get much enjoyment out of when it could better have been spent on helping someone truly in need? In a similar passage, he rebukes those who not only spend much money on, exp on expensive shoes, but then get so worked up about keeping them clean that they effectively walk on tiptoe across the forum to avoid getting any dirt on them. They're so focused, we might say, on keeping the soles of their shoes clean that they give no heed to the state of their souls. S-O-U-L-S. Apologies for the joke. the final passage on that page of the handout. And the young man who has been instructed to meditate on heavenly matters goes around bent down towards the ground, taking greater pride in this, in his shoes, than if he had accomplished some great achievement. He tiptoes through the marketplace and as a result makes himself unnecessarily despondent and pained in case he might dirty his shoes with mud in the winter or cover them with dust in the summer. What do you say? Have you cast your entire soul into the mud through this extravagance? Do you not see it trailing on the ground? And you get so worked up about a pair of shoes. Know what their purpose is and respect the verdict you give about them. To walk on mud and dirt in every spot upon the pavement, this is what your shoes were made for. If you can't bear it, take them and tie them round your neck and put them on your head. <laughs> You laugh in hearing this. I should rather weep at their madness and their zeal for such matters. For these people would rather dirty their bodies with mud than those pieces of leather. 
their priorities, he is saying, are all wrong. Instead of their minds being taken up with spiritual matters, they become obsessed with a pair of shoes. How about our priorities? Are we most concerned with the things that God is most concerned with? Or are his greatest concerns rather lower down on our own list of priorities? I know this has certainly been a challenge for me. Ultimately, Chrysostom wants Christians to be beacons of the gospel, shining in the world and drawing people to Christ. It is only as we live such good lives among the pagans, to quote 1 Peter, that we will make the gospel attractive. This was something that Chrysostom himself learned as a young man. You'll remember that he spent some years away from the city, living eventually in isolation in the mountains around Antioch in his cave. But he returned. We don't know fully the reasons why he returned, but he certainly came to realize that such seclusion was not what Christians were called to. Whilst Christians should never be of the world, they need to be in the world, and by the goodness of their lives, drawing people to the gospel of Christ. Chrysostom wants Christians to engage with their societies, to transform them, and not to withdraw into some holy huddle. Let me close with the final passage on the handout, which I think um, sums this up. And if anyone is found to have a trace of the ancient wisdom, he takes himself off to the mountains, leaving behind the cities and the marketplaces, the enjoyment of society and the instruction of others. And if someone asks him the reason for his withdrawal, he comes up with a plea that cannot be excused. For he says, in case I perish and become more sluggish in virtue, I fly away. How much better would it be for you to be more, slug to be more sluggish and yet gain others than to remain on high and neglect your brothers as they perish? So when there are some who don't care about virtue, whilst those who do care take themselves far away from the front line, how will we win over our enemies? Even if there were still miracles, would anyone be persuaded? Who from outside the church would listen to us when our wickedness is so prevalent? For it is our good life that seems to many to be more trustworthy. Miracles performed by bad and shameless people will get a bad press while a good life will be more than capable of shutting the very mouth of the devil. Let's listen to this call from Chris Austin by seeking to win an audience for the gospel by the attractiveness and goodness of our lives. And with that, I close. Thank you.